Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP, your weekly look inside the world of defence and foreign affairs. This week, Vladimir Putin's biggest critic is jailed as thousands of protesters are arrested. But what will the West do? What ultimately is in the national interest and security of our respective countries? Is it to allow Russia under Putin to go unbridled in its attacks against its citizens? Britain says goodbye to Captain Sir Tom Moore. At the end of the day, we shall be all OK again. The sun will shine on you again and the clouds will go away. We look back at the extraordinary final months of our lockdown hero. Plus, we speak to an army reservist helping in the fight against coronavirus. Nurses and doctors are tired. My colleagues are tired. I'm tired. It's very stressful. There are so many people who do not have any symptoms who are potential carriers. It's hard. Five months ago, Alexei Navalny nearly died in a nerve agent attack in Siberia. Last month, he was detained as soon as he returned to Russia. And this week, he's been jailed for three and a half years. On paper, it's for breaching the terms of a previous suspended sentence. But almost everyone agrees Navalny's been jailed for standing up to Vladimir Putin. The U.S. says it's deeply concerned. Senator Bob Menendez chairs the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. The Kremlin is petrified of Alexei Navalny and uh, petrified of his ability to expose Kremlin corruption, petrified of his ability to resonate with a nationwide following of Russian citizens. In more than a hundred countries, many of those citizens have joined protests backing Navalny. 10,000 of them have been arrested. So what can and what should the West do about this? Well, let's speak to Sir Tony Brenton, a former British ambassador in Moscow. Sir Tony, good to speak to you. Navalny says the prison sentence is Putin's revenge for him surviving the nerve agent attack and is designed to scare off millions of people. Is he right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say that Putin fears Navalny, but he sees Navalny as a serious political challenge to his regime. And he certainly wants Navalny out of the way for the upcoming... Uh, Duma elections, parliament elections, which they have in Russia in June. The whole process of locking Navalny away is entirely political. Navalny's absolutely right about that. Yeah, and in the past, the Kremlin has allowed limited opposition as long as it never looked likely to win any power. It seems no dissent is now tolerated. The limited opposition continues. There's still fairly free internet in Russia. There's still opposition parties, both approved of by the, the, uh, the regime and not. Uh, it is that Navalny has turned himself into a particular challenge to the regime. Mm, what is it about him that seems such a threat? I know Navalny a bit. He's a very impressive guy. He picked exactly the neuralgic issue for the regime in corruption and has been a very effective critic of the regime on corruption issues. But he, he goes slightly wider than that. He stood for the, um, the, the mayorality of Moscow, which is a big job in the Russian system, and did pretty well. He didn't win, but he did pretty well. He's known to not a huge number of, of, of Russians, but a significant number, enough to bring 100,000 people onto the streets uh, when Navalny was arrested when he returned to Russia last week. From Putin's point of view, he's not a, he's not a threat. I mean, Putin is really quite secure. He's got the support of effectively 60% of the Russian people, but and he's got the security agencies behind him and the elite behind him. But he's enough of a challenge for Putin to have decided that he wants him out of the way, at least for the immediate future. And so you met him, have you? Oh, yeah. No, Navalny, as I say, is very impressive. After the failed attempt to poison him, which was almost certainly done by the Russian security agencies, he gets himself cured and he then comes back almost certainly knowing that he would go to jail 
one of the most striking things he said when he was arrested, what he said to his followers, do not believe it if it is announced that I've committed suicide. That's the sort of situation he's put himself into. Uh, and it's very impressive. Well, also with me today is Professor of Defence Studies, Michael Clark. Uh, the protests over the past two weekends have been huge. How worried do you think the Kremlin is? I mean, Satoni obviously thinks they're not. No, I mean, they've certainly got something to worry about. As uh, Satoni said, I mean, Putin is not going to fall over this. Um, but Navalny has that ability to concentrate the disparate sources of opposition which have been building up the discontent, but particularly because of economic stress. And remember that Russia was cash rich um, up to about two. 2012, 2013. And since the prices of oil and gas have, have collapsed, it just has problems now in meeting all its uh, meeting all its commitments. And so Navalny is the sort of lightning rod of, of lots of different sorts of discontent. And in that respect, I think the regime fears him because it's not that Russians want Navalny to be their president, but they, they recognise that he actually expresses their exasperation with the regime. Well, we heard a moment ago from Senator Bob Menendez, who warned the UK standing up to Russia means saying no to Russian money. What ultimately is in the national interest and security of our respective countries? Is it to allow Russia under Putin to go unbridled in its attacks against its citizens, uh, to create chemical weapons attacks on European soil? Is it the right uh, to go ahead and subvert our democracies as Russia has not only tried to do in the United States, but throughout Europe and their elections with misinformation? I think there comes a time in which money should not be the, the standard by which we make those judgments. Professor Michael Clark, the UK has called Navalny's sentencing perverse, but is there a willingness to do anything more? Well, if we really wanted to do more in Britain, it's not really a question of more sanctions, although you could think about more sanctions on some of the uh, the people around uh, President Putin. But it's really the amount of dirty Russian money that's uh, swanning around in London and a lot of uh, Russian oligarchs who are, are here, who've got some pretty close connections with Putin in some cases. So if we're prepared to take the pain, there is quite a lot more we could do. But of course, um, even if we were to do that, it's not clear that all of our um, partners in Europe would actually line up behind us. Michael repeats what a lot of people have been saying, that we in the UK should be doing something about dirty Russian money. And I'm, I'm open to persuasion, but actually we have attempted to do something about it in terms of introducing unexpl so-called unexplained wealth orders three or four years ago now, precisely to catch dirty money and dirty Russian money in particular in the UK. And what is striking is that there have been two or so, and um, they have not, either of them, been attached to Russians. I think there's a, there's a bit of a myth here. There's certainly lots of Russian money in London, um, but to demonstrate that it's actually dirty money has not yet been done. No, you're right. The, the unexplained wealth orders haven't actually done very much at all. There's only been a couple of cases, and both of them have been almost comical. Just briefly, though, uh, almost an impossible question to answer, Satoni. Uh, what do you think will happen to Alexei Navalny? I think, well, I hope, and I also think, that they will be quite careful with him in prison. Um, because if he does die or have a bad accident there, that will simply boost the support for him in Russia and the external anger that Russia faces. So I hope that they'll, 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 I mean, it's not nice that he's in prison, but they'll keep him out of the way until they've got their elections out of the way, and then they'll find an excuse to release him. On the Western reaction, we've heard Bob Menendez there and, and others. Frankly, there is very little we can do. Putin, for pressing domestic reasons, wants Navalny out of the way. He's not interested in what the West thinks 
or how the West is going to react. And he'll do it. I mean, it's, it's equivalent to a British prime minister taking a decision about a general election date. He doesn't care what the Russians think. He's going to do what is politically necessary for him. Well, it's really good to have your thoughts. So, Tony Brenton, thank you for your time today. Russia isn't the only country to see dramatic events this week. The military coup against Aung San Suu Kyi's government in Myanmar played out exactly how you'd expect it to. Internet and phone lines were cut, TV stations taken off air before returning to announce the generals were again back in charge. She's been remanded in custody. There have been protests in Myanmar's major cities, but no sign that the military is going to back down. It's 10 years since Aung San Suu Kyi was released from house arrest in what at the time looked like a transition to democracy, dramatically reversed this week. Well, back to Professor Michael Clark. The trigger for this seems to have been the imminent swearing in of government with the military's unproven claims of electoral fraud rejected. Yes, they were. I think they were taken aback by the size of the victory for the National League for Democracy, which is Aung San Suu Kyi's party. I mean, they won 80%. Um, which is a landslide in anyone's language. And they that was in the November 2020 elections, and they really couldn't live with the idea that uh, this party could have actually undermined their ultimate credibility. And they moved at ex the last moment, in a way, before the swearing-in would have taken place. Um, so it, it is the absolutely classic coup. If you were to write a novel that was full of all of the old tropes about military coups, then you'd tick off every single thing that the, the military have done. And General uh, Hlang, uh, Min Aung Hlang, um, is the classic uh, military dictator who says he's going to have elections next year, but don't hold your breath. Aung San Suu Kyi was a hero to many 10 years ago, but now she's tainted by her support for the military offences against the Rohingya minority, seen by many as genocide. Do you think that will limit international support for her now? Yes, I think it makes things a lot more difficult. I mean, she goes back even further than that. You know, she was in, she was part of what was called the 8888 uprising because it happened on the 8th of August 1988. And that's what brought her to international prominence. And she got enormous uh, public uh, support in, in under house arrest for all of those years, just like Nelson Mandela. And since then, of course, the Rohingya genocidal behaviour of the army that she has defended, I mean, she's not, she was not so far until this coup from being brought in front of a war crimes tribunal. And she said, I mean, when she came into power, um, and the, she, of course she had to share power with the military, and when that was pointed out to her, she said very directly, she said, no, I'm in charge, it is me, I'm in charge. And then within a couple of months, the Rohingya tragedy began. So that has certainly made things much more difficult for her. Um, and it's made more, things more difficult for the international community. But working through the uh, National League for Democracy and Aung San Suu Kyi's undoubted popularity within Myanmar is the only way that the international community can, can go. There's no other candidate, there's no other route to actually trying to get Myanmar back on track. And if we turn away from it because we don't like Aung San Suu Kyi's uh, policies on the Rohingya Muslims, then Myanmar is in for a very, very dark period lasting many, many years, probably. Professor Michael Clark, stay with us. This is Sitrap. Every person who has died during the coronavirus pandemic was special to someone. But Captain Sir Tom Moore was special to millions across the country and around the world. In the dark days of the Second World War, he fought for freedom. And in the face of this country's deepest post-war crisis, he united us all. He cheered us all up and he embodied the triumph 
of the human spirit. He became not just a national inspiration, but a beacon of hope for the world. The Prime Minister paying tribute to the Second World War veteran who raised more than £30 million for the NHS and became a symbol of resilience in the face of a global crisis. It's perhaps even more tragic that he should die after contracting the virus that inspired his fundraising efforts. Paul Osborne looks back now at Captain Tom's extraordinary final months. He was our lockdown hero, exactly what Britain needed at a time when hope was in short supply. And it all started by slowly walking laps of his garden. We set the target at £1,000. And we seem to have got a little bit better than that. His aim? To say thank you to the staff of the NHS. They're all so brave. We're a little bit like having a war at the moment. But the doctors and the nurses, they're all on the front line. And all of us behind, we've got to supply them and keep them going with everything that they need so that they can do their job. In the end, he raised more than 30 million. There he is. Congratulations. Well done. Absolutely amazing, amazing achievement. It seems almost like fairyland to think that we started off as a thousand to a sum of money that's not believable, is it? A guard of honour from 1st Battalion, the Yorkshire Regiment, there as he completed his walk. Major Ian Atkins. It's an honour and a privilege for, all, for us to be here in whatever limited capacity we can to, to support Tom in, in what is an outstanding achievement. To go from trying to raise a £1,000 uh, by doing some lights some of the garden, you know, absolutely fantastic stuff, but I mean, it, it's staggering. And, you know, for us, we see Tom very much as a member of the regimental family. Um, so to be here to support him in any way is, is just great. It's such a privilege. Tom Moore was born in Keithley and joined the army at the start of the Second World War. Posted to India, he fought in Burma, rising to the rank of captain. But his charitable exploits would see him given the honorary rank of colonel. I was very moved by that because you get the honorary rank of colonel in, in my regiment is something which I would never, ever anticipate. I really am honoured by that. People call me colonel. That would be great, wouldn't it? And for his 100th birthday, an RAF fly pass. I'm one of the few people here who've seen a, a hurricane and spitfires flying past in anger. Fortunately, today, they're all flying peacefully. Then a knighthood, a ceremony at Windsor Castle and a meeting with the Queen. To get this honour is, is so outstanding that uh, I really can't say how, how different I feel, but I certainly feel that I've been given a very outstanding honour by the Queen and the Prime Minister, and I thank them all very much. When you walk through a storm, hold your head up high. More records would be broken too when he hit number one in the singles chart. At the end of the storm, there's a golden sky, and sweet silver song of the lark. He wanted to thank the staff of the NHS, and the money he raised is still making a difference, according to Ellie Orton from NHS Charities Together. We owe him so much for inspiring people to support NHS charities. The funds that he raised are making such a difference right now to NHS staff, volunteers and patients. 
Captain Sir Tom Moore could never have imagined the impact that the final months of his life would have on a nation that was desperate for good news, for optimism and something to look forward to. We will get through it in the end. Uh, it, will all, it will all be right, and, but it might take time. But at the end of the day, we shall be all OK again. And all those people who are finding it difficult at the moment, the sun will shine on you again and the clouds will go away. The remarkable Captain Sir Tom Moore there. Well, Lieutenant Colonel Tom Miller is the commanding officer of 1st Battalion, the Yorkshire Regiment. He met Captain Sir Tom Moore when he was made an honorary colonel of the Army Foundation College. The brief encounter that I had on his birthday captured everything that we have seen in the media, that humble proud, energetic individual that had so much to say, do and give. There was this real transparency to, to him with a foundation of this wicked sense of humour that would, would emerge at, at any moment and, and therefore kept you really on your toes. Well, Professor Michael Clark is with me. Uh, Michael, extraordinary how he became this kind of symbol of resilience. Yes, the, the thing that always struck me about, about this is that he used the phrase that everyone used to use in his generation during the Second World War. He said, I wanted to do my bit, my bit. And of course, he thought his bit would be to raise a thousand pounds. But because it struck a chord in the national imagination, of course, he ended up raising multiple millions. But it started because he wanted to do his bit. And I thought that was very affecting. And at a time when we have suspicions and scepticism about more or less everyone in public life, here was someone we could have no doubt about. Yes. I mean, the Second World War was won by the middle classes of this country. I'm, I'm a child of the 60s, and I used to think that the middle classes, my parents' generation, they were narrow-minded and they were prissy and they were boring. But they also, as I've come to realise, they had grit and they had decency and they had a commitment to each other. And that was what actually sustained Britain during the Second World War and in the rebuilding period afterwards, in the, in the 1950s. So they may have been boring, but they were necessary. Captain Sir Tom, exactly encapsulated that at a time when I think the country needs it again. Now, this week, the RAF's flown 3,000 doses of coronavirus vaccine to the Falkland Islands. But while millions across the UK have had their first dose and infection numbers are falling, the pressure on the NHS remains intense. Army reservist Major Rachel Reynolds works in NHS hospitals across Yorkshire and told our reporter Kirsty Chambers it's been a very tough time for everyone in the health service. Nurses and doctors are tired. My colleagues are tired. I'm tired. It's very stressful as well because you're putting your own health at risk. And although you're wearing full personal protective equipment when you're dealing with these patients, there are so many people who do not have any symptoms, who are potential carriers, who are potentially spreading it. And now with this new variant, it's hard. But hopefully with the vaccine programme having commenced, hopefully things will change. But I don't see it going away for a while. So you actually juggle two rather important frontline jobs. You're an army reservist with the 212 Field Hospital, but you're also an NHS nurse working in the emergency department. What's that been like for you as an NHS nurse to work during a pandemic? What kind of things are you seeing in the hospitals? The emergency department has been exceedingly busy. We're seeing a lot of sick patients uh, with covid um, who are looked after in our rhesus room, which is classed as a red area. So we're all in full personal protective equipment. And yeah, it's just so hard for all the patients. They can't have family and friends with them. 
So we're trying to do that role as well and comfort them and reassure them. Obviously, we're in full PPE, so you learn to smile with your eyes so that they can see that you you genuinely are caring for them. Um, we've also had um, cases where people have been really, really sick and are not likely to make it. And on occasions, we have let family in. Um, that happened the other day uh, for a person who's was actually working in the hospital as a member of staff. It was likely that her mum wouldn't see she wouldn't see her mum again. So we let her in. We gave her full PPE. You know there are very rare occasions, but as a as a general matter, of course, we're not allowed to let people in. Has your reservist career actually helped you in your NHS role? in order to sort of deal with the effects of COVID-19 and the pressures that the hospitals are facing? Absolutely. COVID has been around a long time. I remember in my own A&E department where I was working before I finished. And you actually sent me some pictures of yourself in all the PPE. What's it like wearing that for up to 12 hours a day, I imagine, for some of your shifts? The PPE is, it's very hot. I'm not wearing a uniform at the moment. I'm wearing scrubs, scrubs, so theatre scrubs. Um, they're quite warm anyway. And you've got your your gowns and then you've got your visor and your mask. Your hair gets wet. I took some scissors to my hair in absolute desperation and my husband had to sort it out for me because I had it, I had just had sweat running down my neck. You're soaked through to the skin with sweat. Do you think within your military role, 212 hospital might actually get called up? Anything's possible. Uh, anything is possible. As a reserve, we're always ready to respond if we need to. So, you know, just case of packing my kit if I need to go. Yeah. Major Rachel Reynolds there. Well, while the EU has struggled to ramp up its vaccination programme, in Gibraltar, progress has been held a roaring success. Around a third of the population have had their first vaccine and some are already getting a second jab. The RAF's been flying in thousands of doses. BFBS's Simon Marlowe is there, but he told me more than 70 COVID-related deaths on Gibraltar last month show the need to move quickly. It's the, singly the, the greatest loss of life to Gibraltarians that there has ever been. And that is the, the tragic news that, you know, is constant. However, uh, the numbers are coming down, uh, those that are, get, are being infected by it quite dramatically. So there is light there, but it is a very tragic situation when you hear those numbers of people who have lost their lives. Indeed. You have had the jab. How was it? Yeah, well, all of those the most vulnerable, the over 70s, the frontline workers, and that includes the military, have all had uh, the jabs. They have now, um, they're down to looking at the over 60s. And this week, I believe they're going to start uh, looking at all those over 50. Yes, I have had it. And uh, I went on Monday and the process runs incredibly smoothly. And uh, there are two locations around Gibraltar where you can get it. You know, you queue up when you get there. You have to wait uh, in the waiting room. That You then get called through. It takes no more than a couple of minutes. And then you go into a waiting room to make sure you haven't had any uh, side effects for about a quarter of an hour. And they haven't had anybody that's really suffered in that respect. And then you're free to go. So the whole process took me about an hour. And uh, the side effects can be a little bit flu-like, but I never experienced that. So, so Simon, how many military personnel in Gibraltar have been vaccinated so far? 
all the military have been included and uh, they should be hearing within days if they haven't already had it. Some of the military have already had the, uh, the vaccination, but they had until yesterday if they didn't want to have the vaccine to get in touch with the military medical center. Uh, I think most people have wanted to get it done. And then the GHA, which is the hospital here, will then contact you. But as I say, that process is already underway and a great deal of the military are, depending upon your age and your susceptibility to other infections, uh, are being contacted already. And, and despite the, um, the success of the vaccination programme there, precautions do remain, don't they, to prevent the spread of the virus? They do. And, you know, we are in a lockdown scenario. Uh, we can't go over to Spain. I mean, neighbouring us here is La Linea, and I believe that's one of the highest uh, areas in, within Andalusia uh, from the point of view of cases of COVID. We are told to work from home. We are working from home here at Four Corners, where I'm based, where all the military families are. And that's what you're being advised to do. However, at the beginning of this week, they did start to open the shops again. Shops generally open now Monday to Friday, but they're not open at weekends because that's when you obviously would get a, an influx of people going down Main Street. Things are slowly but surely getting back to some degree of normality, but it's a way off yet. Simon Marlowe in Gibraltar. Now, we've heard a lot in recent years about a recruitment crisis in the armed forces, but could poor military accommodation be contributing to a retention crisis? A new report is warning almost half the places for single personnel would not meet current building standards. The National Audit Office says that's inevitably going to push some people out of the forces. Molly Perella has more. Last year, around 80,000 servicemen and women were in single living accommodation, more than half the total number of serving personnel. But this report says more than a third live under poor conditions, while for nearly 2,500 people, the accommodation is so bad they're not even charged any rent for it. Jeremy Lonsdale is from the National Audit Office. Since uh, about 2010, uh, the approach to maintenance has been fix on fail. So rather than having a, a sort of systematic preventative approach, uh, there's been a you know reacting to, uh, to, to to problems. This is leading to a, a sort of long term deterioration of the of the defence estate, including accommodation. The backlog of repairs totals one and a half billion pounds, in part, says the report, because maintenance is so poor. Repairs are only done once something breaks down. In the, the survey that's done annually, growing dissatisfaction with the uh, standard of maintenance uh, and repairs, slow response to, uh, to problems with you know, eating, lighting and, and, and basics like that. For a long time, this hasn't been a priority for, for, for the Ministry of Defence. There hasn't really been a clear strategy and there's been uh, limited investment at times uh, in, in buildings. The MOD is promising to spend the money needed on replacing the worst accommodation and renovating the rest, but the NAO warns it will take time to see any significant improvement. It will impact on retention if the government don't do enough. Shadow Defence Minister Stephen Morgan. There is so much more that needs to be done to tackle these issues. Over half of serving personnel are not satisfied with accommodation. That's not good enough and I believe that our armed forces deserve the very best and that's why we need to see further action by this government. This week's report blames decades of underinvestment while ministers point to the Armed Forces Bill making its way through Parliament which they say has a renewed focus on issues like housing. They've got to listen to what personnel are saying via the Continuous Attitude Survey. Listen to what the charities are saying too. There's much more that needs to be done if we want to get people through and in the armed forces and staying in the armed forces to serve our country. 
the government have got to take action. The MOD has said it will carefully consider the report. Molly Perella with that report there. Well, Professor Michael Clark is still with us. Um, issues like this are often overlooked, not a priority. But if you're living in lousy accommodation with unreliable heating in the middle of winter, you'd probably think about leaving, wouldn't you? And lots of them do. And that's one of the real problems. I mean, this, this whole idea of you know, fix on fail, it's something you can only do for a short period in an emergency. But if it becomes standard policy, then fix on fail just means that you're going to let the actual capital asset deteriorate. And that's exactly what has happened. And so that affects not so much recruitment, but it certainly affects retention. I think there's some pretty clear evidence about that. And the military have got to think much more carefully because they're trying to attract a different type of person into the military who will be much more tech savvy who'll be able to operate the sort of military of the 20 late 2020s and 2030s and these people will not settle for the sort of accommodation that people settle for even 10 years ago uh, if they don't address it now i think the the mod will find that they've got a real problem on their hands uh, in a few years time and uh, michael before we go uh, the prime minister appears to have had a change of heart about who he wants as his national security advisor the appointment of lord frost surprised many because he had no security expertise but now it's going to be Sir Stephen Lovegrove, who's been Permanent Secretary at the MOD for the last five years. What's gone on? Yes, uh, I mean, that's another rabbit from the Prime Minister's rather confused hat. Most people in defence would say, well, it's good that Lord Frost is not going to try to do that job because he's not a security professional. And Stephen Lovegrove is. It's also useful, I think, for the MOD that when they're working through the integrated review when they see it, then Stephen Lovegrove will be the National Security Advisor, so he will understand very pretty pretty clearly what the MOD has been all about. That's all advantageous. The question that we're all thinking about now, of course, is who will be the next permanent undersecretary at the MOD. Answers on a postcard, please. Maybe a rabbit from a hat another day. That's it for this week. My thanks to Professor Michael Clark and to all of my guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP and at bfbs.com slash sitrep you can listen back to past programs and find links to subscribe to the podcast for now though from me kate chabot thank you for listening bye-bye in a brand new original bfbs podcast tonight the battle has been joined decision makers the gulf war was very much the first televised war military commanders. There we were witnessing that. And ordinary soldiers, sailors and airmen. At night, you could hear the firing from the American Navy using their cruise missiles and the battleship shelling the Iraqi forces ashore. Hear the story of the 1991 Gulf War. The conditions of being in the desert were a huge impact. When you're trying to maintain infection control, it's really, really challenging. Told by those who were there. Where I found it most terrifying when we lost a jet from Bahrain. And you're sitting there thinking, I might not come back. Granby, the storm in the desert. Wherever you get your podcasts and at bfbs.com slash podcasts.